In this episode, we're going to answer the questions that has puzzled humanity for as long as anyone can remember. What is love? Now, now, don't hurt me on this one. It needs to be answered. Throw in some 80s cameos, a lively Saturday night, and the quest to get into the only club that matters, and you have yourselves a party. So bop your head to the right, everyone. It's time to prove that a night at the Roxbury is not that bad. Welcome, welcome, welcome to It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A grades in B movies. And you're going to find yourself wanting to dance a lot in this one because we are talking 1998's A Night at the Roxbury. And we're watching that thanks to one person. Carla from the Bed, Wed, and Behead podcast is joining us on this show. Carla, welcome. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I am so, I'm doing so well because we're talking about, about one of the best pieces of American cinema of all time. Okay. You say that. What is it about <laughs> this movie that made you say, no, no, we, we, you got to watch this. <laughs> you know, when, when it first came out, I was I was in college and um, I was not going clubbing, though, because I just I, I was very much a nerd. So this was more of a, of a I imagine this is what clubbing looks like experience. <laughs> so uh, the movie came out and just something about it just really stuck with me. It, it was it's it's a movie that doesn't really ask a lot of you. <laughs> and I like that in a movie. I like a movie that is simple and just fun. It also has an awesome soundtrack, and I just fell in love with Chris Kattan and Will Ferrell in this. They were just, they have like a really good chemistry in the movie. The, the that, fam, that family bond, that brotherly bond really comes to life, and, and it just kind of sucks you in. Uh, the movie is endlessly quotable. It has like so many things that I have just said to people throughout my entire life that they look at me and they're like, why would you say that to me? I'm like, clearly you haven't watched the best film of all time. <laughs> um, but also it's a nostalgia thing because I ended up watching the movie eight times in the movie theater. And oh then, <laughs> yeah, th that's how much I loved it. And a lot of those times were in the dollar movie theater because it got bounced really fast. Um, <laughs> but uh, a friend and I watched it all of those eight times in the movie theater. And then, of course, I bought the DVD and watched it a bazillion more times and have... Um, lovingly foisted it on many other people since then. It's always odd too when you when you quote a movie, and there's always the ones that that stick out. The ones that are, you know, you just walk up people go sup 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 sup, right? <laughs> but it's when you get those 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 the the deep cut esoteric quotes that people just look and go, huh? I don't know how many times this <laughs> happened to me with the Princess Bride. You know, oh, I, literally like anytime someone you know leaves the room they're like have fun storming the castle they're like <laughs> I, I, you, I, you I, have I don't no understand. idea how many times my husband has said that to me like I'm, I'm leaving the house I'm like bye honey he's like have fun storming the castle and I'm like oh my lord yep okay so before we get too deep into uh the movie it's time to take a night at the Roxbury and trailerize it two brothers one car one room one dream. Doug and Steve Butabi dare to ask the most important question of them all. What is love? With Chris Kattan, Will Ferrell, Dan Hedaya, 
and many other actors you will recognize from better movies. A Night at the Roxbury is opening its doors for you. That's how I always describe it to people. I always describe it to people as it's about two brothers who are forging their own path uh, away from their father's, you know, their father's, their family business. And people are like, oh, that actually sounds interesting. And I'm like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Wait till you see it. <laughs> yeah. So let's get into, um, first of all, who's in this movie? Um, obviously, you, know, you you have the two brothers and Chris Kattan. This was actually his first feature film. Yes, he had yeah. been on, yeah. Yes, he was on Saturday Night Live beforehand. And that's where these characters were developed. And of course, Will Ferrell. You mentioned Dan Hedaya. Molly Shannon is in this. Yes. W, WKRP's Lonnie Anderson. Uh-huh. Richard Greco, Richard Greco as Richard Greco, you know, Twenty One <laughs> Jump Street, Richard Greco, and then I had to bring this up. Meredith Scott Lynn, who of course was the uh, uh, the girl at the uh, the the credit card company, Operator Two Three Eight, who actually appeared in an episode of Twenty One Jump Street the year after Greco left the show. No even way! Though, even though she's mostly known for being on Days of Our Lives as Ann Milbauer. Then you've got Lachlan Monroe, who played Craig, like the the gym trainer, mm-hmm. who also appeared in four different episodes of 21 Jump Street, each time as a different character. <laughs> Is so, that some kind of record? I, I'm, it might be. It might be. And an uncredited appearance by Chaz Palminteri uh, as the, the club owner. And not only was it the first feature film of Chris Kattan, but it's the first cinematic appearance of Eva Mendez as a bridesmaid. Yes. So there yes, is baby Eva. There is a huge comedic cast in this that you that you forget just how just how good this cast is if it's been a while since you've seen it. Well, and there's also Jennifer Coolidge as haughty police officer. Right? Stifler's you know, mom. Like, yes, yes. It, it's it's a whole smorgasbord of a fantastic and um Elisa Donovan was also in Clueless. The three actors who were, I think it's, yeah, three actors who were in Clueless who appeared in this movie mm-hmm. are the the woman who played Miss Geist, whose name I can't recall right now, uh, Dan Hedaya, who, of course, played Cher's dad, and um, I just mentioned him and I can't remember. No, Elisa Donovan, who played Amber. Which is probably a, a big thanks to the fact that Amy Heckerling, who produced Clueless, also produced this. But didn't direct it. It was directed by John Fortenberry. Uh, this, this was his last. And I, I, I've lost track of how many times we've had to say this. This would be the last movie he would ever direct. It wasn't the, uh, the last time he did direct, but it's the last theatrical release. And it's only his second theatrical release as a director. The other one, 1995's Jury Duty, which starred Pauly Shore. So, you know, oh. so, so we got better with age. Um, <laughs> but the funny thing is, if you take a look at his his TV credits as a director, you got the Ben Stiller show, you got the Dana Carvey show, you've got two guys, a girl in a pizza place, everybody loves Raymond Blackish, you've got a good good uh, comedy pedigree as far as a director goes so clearly the movie was in decent hands yes yeah you know i i don't think that there can be well obviously there can because people panned it left and right but i think it's a solid movie in part because of the directing and and you can't even feel that this is chris Kattan's first 
feature film. It really feels like he has more confidence and experience than than um, than that. Mm-hmm. And the nice thing is there's also a lot kind of from behind the scenes. Yes, the movie was kind of written by Katana Farrow because it's based on their characters. Now, according to IMDb, uh, Jim Carrey actually contributed to the script. Um, just an, an uncredited contribution, which is kind of funny when, you know, you've got Chas Palminteri, you know, calling up to Jim Carrey in the club. Um, <laughs> also, Chris Katan's father is in this movie uh, as yes. one of the flower shop customers. And it's also the movie where I'm pretty sure this is where they met, Will Ferrell met his wife, Vivica Pollan, who was one of the Porsche girls. Um, so there's there's a there's a lot to this movie as far as like just who's in it and, and you know, what it took to make it. Right. And it's also, it also kind of marks the end of Will Ferrell and Chris Kattan's friendship. Mm-hmm. So, which is, is, it's a sad thing because they come up together in, um, in I think, The Groundlings. And then, of course, they were together in Saturday Night Live. And you can really feel in this movie that they that they had, you know, like a history and, and a friendship because that, that just really comes across mm-hmm. the screen. So it's just very sad that that their friendship ended after this. But, you know, yeah. it, it feels like like this movie, this movie is kind of like a, a vortex where things begin and end. Yeah, it's it's odd when you read into the story of kind of why, you know, they didn't speak for like a long time i don't know if they if they even have still spoken to each other i mean obviously you know as i always say we don't know right but i mean in chris Catan's memoir baby don't hurt me he claimed that lauren michaels pressured him to have sex with amy heckerling so that she would direct and you know i, th- I think it was heckerling's daughter that kind of came out saying i sure would love to hear lauren's take on this like it's there. There's a there's a sordid story behind here that I'm not quite sure if we'll ever hear the tr- like the full story on it. Right. It's it's you know when I first heard about it, I was I was kind of shocked. Well, because of everything that transpired due to that, you know the mm-hmm. um, the end of Will Ferrell and Chris Kattan's friendship, and and that was because according to Chris Kattan's book. Because Will Ferrell was hurt that Chris Kattan did this without, you know, he never told him about it. He kind of kept him in the dark about this. So he mm-hmm. felt like it was really unprofessional and it's also just, you know, betraying their friendship. Um, and aside, aside the fact that Kattan was actually dating Jennifer Coolidge at the time. Was it? Oh, that's right. Wait a second. Was he? Yeah. No, I'm thinking of somebody else. Wow. Wow. So it's like a whole ball of mess in there. Exactly. But you know, with with things being what they are, and with um, just the, I, I I feel like anybody who's who comes out with a claim like that, they it's not something that they will say lightly. So I tend to, kind of, well, not kind of. I, I tend to say, okay, well, this is something that happened to that person, and yeah. it should be addressed. And it's not sufficiently addressed in particular for, um, well, for anybody. But I think with with men, it also gets played down a lot because it's like, oh, so you, you know, um, it, you, it, you, had, it, you got somebody's attention, you're complaining. What's that about? It is interesting, though, because I don't think any of that tension came across in their performances on screen in this movie. 
Right. Unlike, unlike if you take a look at, you know, not the, the, I think it was like Fast and Furious 8, where like The Rock and Vin Diesel were just kind of snipping at each other. And I think they were only in maybe one scene together through the whole movie. And that's got it. It can't make making a film easy, but it it didn't take away from what Catan and Farrell, I think, brought to the film. Right, right. And that really speaks to a level of professionalism that that's commendable on, on both their parts. Um, the, the only real part where they, where if it did come up in the middle of this, where there's strife is that scene in the, on the highway when um, they're sniping at each other, the characters. And that's the only place where they would conceivably have informed their performances. But other than that, you can't imagine them being anything but the best of friends. Mm -hmm. Let's take a look at at how it was received, though. Um, It was a $17 million budget and grossed $30 million worldwide. Keep in mind, these are $1998. So, I mean, that's actually pretty good. But when it came out, when it came out, it was the third movie the third major movie to debut that weekend. It placed fourth. Number one went to Ants. Number two, like also debuting was What Dreams May Come. So, but it's still finished behind Rush Hour, like the very first Rush Hour <laughs> film, which was in third. So, I mean, it's, you know, to, to, to steal one of those lines you would use in marketing, the highest grossing comedic debut movie that you know so we put as many disclaimers as you can in there but i mean it's still not bad for let's be honest saturday night live sketches turned movies don't exactly have the greatest track record um and that also shows in the tomato meter it's currently sits at an 11 percent tomato meter or tomatometer um but a 69 percent audience score that that is a massive swing right normally you see like oh it's got like you know 15 and 23 or 32 and 20 no this is this goes from 11 to 69 percent so before we we break that even that down who to you is right or is it really somewhere in the middle for this movie oh i i think it definitely deserves the audience score of 69 i i think that Critics are kind of um, primed to be against movies based off of sketches. Mm-hmm. And especially around that time, because I think that there were a lot of of Lorne Michaels, SNL sketch uh, movies coming out. And people were like, all right, OK, now you're just like, you know, digging at the bottom of the barrel. You're milking the TV show at that point. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Frankly, they were. (laughs) I mean, it was a stretch to make this, but yeah. But so Will Ferrell, this is tied for third for his lowest rated tomato film. Also at 11%, another Saturday Night Live sketch turned movie, The Ladies Man. (laughs) 1% lower, Holmes and Watson at 10%. Which surprised me that that wasn't the lowest one. No, the lowest one is The Suburbans. This oh, little known wow. film, which also, if memory serves, had Jennifer Love Hewitt in it. I think so. I, I think I remember when that one came out and 
thinking, yeah, that's not for me. <laughs> and I'll admit I haven't seen the Suburbans yet. I'm sure I will someday. Um, I just remember seeing like the, the cover of the DVD and going, oh, discount that thing you do. Okay, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah for for me uh, the ladies man i thought that's another movie that's that's actually not that bad i really enjoyed it um but i i'm surprised that a night at the roxbury shares the distinction of being at 11 percent with two other will ferrell movies that that's you know way to go my little movie <laughs> uh all right so let, let's get into the breakdown here and i'm gonna toss it to you first who stood out to you as being good acting in night at the roxbury Oh wow! Okay, I I really was impressed with with Catan. I really thought that he did a great job because it, it's such a it, it's such a broad character and it's such a broad performance. But there was still like a lot of nuggets of of truth in it. Of of um of there was so much humanity in Doug that he wasn't quite the caricature that it could have been mm-hmm. because the entire premise of the sketch is that it's these two douchebags who are perving on ladies at clubs and then they get in a car and they bop their head to the right to how to ways um what is love and that's the whole thing it's like how do you stretch that stretch that into into a movie and they did it and they made me care about it they made me care about these two brothers and a lot of that really relied on chris katan's performance because he uh this is what could have been a one note character, but he has heart, he has drive, um, he has ambition. It's hilarious. His delivery is fantastic. And his, his interplay with other actors, I thought was great. His, his interactions with, um, with Dan Hedaya were awesome. I really enjoyed seeing them bicker at each other because they're so similar. His, uh, relationship quote-unquote relationship with Camby <laughs> was right. hilarious and you could you, you can kind of buy that that heartbreak when you know when she tells him what's really going on but I, I was I was really pretty impressed and even re-watching it all of these bazillion years later I'm still like good job Catan I will say that the two of them together uh, as Steve and Doug when you think about some of the, the the funniest movies that kind of came out around that era, it was always that not clueless, not witless, but more, you know, in their own world and their, their world is awesome. And the rest of the world kind of needs to change around them. Bill and Ted, you know, Wayne oh, and yes. Garth, right. Mm-hmm. Or even, you know, for, for my Canadian listeners here, Bob and Doug McKenzie, you know, getting back to that Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas duo from the SCTV days, which, by the way, go watch Strange Brew. You'll have fun. It's the, the one and only Bob and Doug movie. It's it kind of fits that mold where you just basically take two brothers and you know kind of put them into that very odd, that very odd scenario. And it works well. But that's the thing that works about the Butabi brothers. They're not idiots. They're not they're not Adam Sandler characters, you know, for lack of a better term, yes. you know, they are, they're very much lost in their own world in their own ways. And the world, you know, the world needs to change for them to kind of, or they need to change the match, the world. And that I think kind of makes the, makes those characters work. Yes, that, that absolutely makes sense. It's, it does have that, that vibe and, 
it works so well. Like I said, because they pull you in because they're so likable as mm-hmm. as people. It, it, they they do have more dimensions than the than the sketch really calls yeah. for, and their their you know struggle, as it were, is still really relatable. If if you you know if you want something and it's an impractical dream to the rest of the world, but to you, it's the one thing that you really want to do. Yep, it, it is very much one of those things where. You see some people that are, that are, you know, idiosyncratic to say the least. And, you know, some would just make fun of them and, and brush them off. Others will sit there point and go, they're living their best life because that's yes. what, that's what makes them happy. You know, going to clubs, you know, albeit not successfully hitting on women in the clubs. I'm surprised it <laughs> took them as long as it did to throw them out of some of those clubs. Oh yes. I'm surprised they stayed as long as alive in the mud club as they did, <laughs> but they are, they're living their best life. And I think the, I think what made it work too, was the fact that uh, a couple episodes ago on this podcast, we talked about the love guru and how I think the love guru would have fared better or at least come across better had that character been developed on SNL as a, as a sketch, we knew the Butabis. We, you know, they had been developed on SNL. They worked well in a three-minute sketch. And that's when you can really open the door to, you know, I want to know more about the Butabis. I want to know what their world is like outside of this club where they're bopping. What are they like when the club is closed? And that's right. that's what that's what really kind of drew it out. And like, yeah, I was ready to learn the story of the Butabi brothers. I wasn't ready to learn the story of the love guru at the time, but the Butabi brothers, I was ready for it. Right. It really does make a difference having that connection, even if it's just a quick sketch and there's not much to it. You're familiar with them. Mm -hmm. You know that, you know more or less what they're about, or you think you do. And it made you laugh. You know, it made you laugh while you were watching it. So you're like, you know, whatever we'll just check it out what's the worst that can happen i'm not entertained exactly speaking of snl though can we just sit and appreciate how awesome molly shannon is because every time every time you put her in a movie you put her in a role on tv she's going to she reminds me of tina fey Mm -hmm. you put you put tina fey in anything and that role stands out. You put Molly Shannon in anything, that role stands out. She makes every scene she's in better. And she took that very much, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, bait and switch type character. Oh, I'm like this until <laughs> I'm like this. Right. Right. She worked it so well. And I love the chemistry between her and Farrell. Like you saw that in SNL. It comes across here as well. Yes. I. She's always surprising. You know, she's she's done so much amazing work throughout her career. But every time that she's on screen, I'm I'm very pleasantly surprised to see her anytime that she pops up. Mm-hmm. But I you know, you do get drawn to her and to her characters because she's just so magnetic. She she really knows how to command attention. Um and it can be something broad or it can be something small but she just really she's really a, a gifted um a gifted entertainer and with this role you know it, it, it's such a silly role she 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 runs around after steve and is you know kind of pouncing on him every t- every chance that she gets 
And then as soon as they get together, suddenly it's like, it's all business. It's like, you know, what were you thinking buying this crap? You know, whatever. And she's all business and she just is there to unite the plant and the lamp shop and have the plant lamp shop. And that's it. That That's her whole deal all of a sudden. But it never comes across as false. It mm-hmm. never comes across as like a slap in the face because all throughout there's this, this vein of, um, of this is just completely within who this character is. You know, oh, she, she'll do what, what it takes to get what she wants. And she, uh, Molly Shannon tends to do that with her roles. Like even, you know, in, uh, um, as Mary Catherine Gallagher in, uh, the sketch on SNL and in the movie Superstar, it's great because it's her mm-hmm. and because she throws herself absolutely into every little performance and every little character. Um, it's why one of my, you know, one of my favorite sketches on SNL is the, the 50 year old lady, you know, she's like, I, I can kick and whatever. And then kick again. I'm 50, 50 <laughs> years old. And I, that still comes up in my mind every now and then because I, I, I'm like, it was just so, there was such commitment to the role and it's no different here. She's completely committed to being Emily and to, uh, just randomly telling Steve, you know, uh, I love making out and I don't mean to brag, but I'm really, really good at it. <laughs> it, it. It does play into one of those, you know, you know, she seems sweet and innocent, but you don't know what she's like, you know, when, you know, in this case it was when she's off of college, you know, I, you know, you have flashbacks of Allison Hannon going, well, this one time at band camp, you know, <laughs> and those kind of characters work well. And yeah, Molly Shannon, you know, not only is she a superstar, but <laughs> but she does. She she makes every scene she's in good. Same with Dan Hedaya in this. Yes. I don't know if you can pick a better dad for the Butabi brothers than Dan Hedaya. He was so perfect. He was absolutely perfect. And you completely bought that uh that relationship. It makes no sense mm-hmm. if you're just looking at it from the outside. It's like it's Okay, it's these two, first of all, they're brothers, and then second of all, and that's their dad. Yeah. But it completely works because Dan Hedaya is another one of those actors who gives everything into this role. And even though, much like in Clueless, this is a dad who yells a lot, it's it still has a very different feel. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it doesn't feel like, like a carbon copy, like it's just a lazy, you know... Uh, replica it, it it feels like it's, it's its own character so when you're seeing Mr. Butabi you're just completely committed in, in your mind to the fact that this is their dad and he's very annoyed at them because they're doing a poor job at the register and he's yelling at his son about cutting up the plants and making them into toys and uh, you're a jungle theme you know like all of that stuff that he yells it's he's just great and i love him and anytime that i see him in something i'm like oh look it's it's you know it's mr butabi <laughs> i i i'll admit you know that 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 line of you know it's a jungle theme you're a jungle theme that sounds <laughs> that sounds very much like that that frustrated dad who's had every argument with their kid over yes. and over again to the point of they're just like you know i'm hungry you're hungry no wait that doesn't work oh crap because you're just frustrated beyond belief that you're now arguing points of like the kid's going to argue with you no matter what and mm-hmm. it's it, i found it interesting though because when you think about it 
if you take a look at the family dynamic of the Butabis, you know, Dan Hedaya, you know, Chris Kattan is definitely Dan Hedaya's kid in this. Yes. Will yes. Farrell is definitely Lonnie, An- Lonnie Anderson's kid in this because yeah, you have like the, the kid that's going to be their dad and the kid that's going to be their mom when you're dealing with brothers. And that's kind of the way it goes, mm-hmm. you know? So I think like the, the parents together, I mean, Lonnie Anderson wasn't there that much, but I still, I still think that, you know, if that's the wife that Dan Hedaya married, no wonder that Chris Kattan and, and, and Will Ferrell are constantly going to clubs to try to find, for lack of the better term, the trophy wife. Right. Right. Because I, I don't think that they have, you know, looking at it more deeply and psychologically, <laughs> I don't think that they have, you know, a real idea of what to do with a woman. They have mm-hmm. no clue. And I mean, it's not even I think they sincerely do not have any idea when a woman actually accepts their advances they're like what (laughs) and when they're actually about to have sex with them they just flip out and um and doug for example keeps like you know saying cheesy lines until um canby is fed up and says hey doug if I told you you had a nice body, would you hold it against me? And he's like, uh, what? Because <laughs> she, he doesn't know what to do with him. that. She broke yeah, him. She broke him. she broke him. But yeah, it, it just, you get this feeling that they've never really had much interaction with with women and their relationship with their mother. It's, she still treats them like like little kids. Mm-hmm. You know, she she runs after them to make sure that they're not leaving the house without a cell phone, even in, even if it's a brick instead of you know a fancy oh, flip phone from. Oh God, those cell phones! <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love them so much. They were such my my Funko dolls. Um, have the the, the giant uh, brick cell phones, and the, the, I just, I adore that detail. Those cell phones were not just cell phones; they were personal defense weapons. <laughs> They, they were, they were multi tools. Oh yeah, they were multi tools. You know, you could really multitask back then. You know, now now you can't really hurt anybody with a with an iPhone. Um, yeah, you'd hurt the iPhone more than you hurt the actual person. <laughs> yes, instantly. Like, oh no, I breathed in it wrong. Now it's dead. You, you pull out, um, but you yeah. pull out that cell phone. It's like, oh, they, they're armed. Run. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. She knew what she was doing. She was preparing her voice. Um, but yeah, there's just you don't get the sense that there's a lot to her, and so they. It, I think that maybe they just idealize that relationship and certainly their dad and their mom don't really interact in a significant way. So you can't really even say um, that their dad's a good example of what to look for. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's just, I think that, that, that it says a lot about who they are as, as men just in general, that their interactions w- with women are just so forced like maybe they, they went to boarding school and never met women before and like this is their first time out of boarding school <laughs> in their entire lives and they're like oh, i don't know what do we do with them sorry boys have you never womened before like right <laughs> <laughs> but, but- I, I do love I, I do love when um Gigi rice who plays vivica mm-hmm. says to to steve is this your first time and he says yes isn't it yours like just so earnestly, like of course, mm-hmm. it it does. Like by going too deep into these movies, which we do a lot on the show, um, you take a look at the dynamic between Lonnie Anderson and Will Ferrell. You know, yeah. very much the, the the doting mothering. Like clearly, she's helped guide him through the everything to get to this point. 
But then the fact that, you know, when uh, he and Molly Shannon get together and she starts to steer the relationship in her way, it makes sense because mom probably steered him all the way to this point. And now Molly Shannon is going to steer him the rest of the way. So, uh, again, there's a lot of clever family dynamic writing in the characters and it's pulled off. Even if Lonnie Anderson doesn't seem like she's doing much, the fact that she's not doing much almost tells more of the story as to why Will Ferrell allows Molly Shannon to kind of take control. Well, I I think that there's that beyond that, I I think Steve is just he's he needs a leader, you Mm -hmm. know, whether it's his mom or Emily. But in between there, you have Doug guiding his every decision and his personal style and how he approaches life and steve's just happy to go along with whatever doug tells him and then when he gets together with emily it's like emily decides to take charge and so you know steve's like okay i guess we're doing this so i I think it's beyond the, the the dynamic with his mom i i got the sense that you know, if you're looking at stereotypical family dynamics and sibling dynamics, that he would have been the younger brother and Doug would have been the older brother who was like, OK, this is what we're doing. OK. Mm-hmm. And then the little brother's like, all right, I'm coming with you. It, it felt to me and getting back to those comparisons to other movies, you know, Steve is Ted. Yes. You know, and 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 Doug is Bill. Steve is Garth. And, you know. And Doug is Wayne. You know, so you see that, you know, one's a little bit more, not spacey, but very much like, you know, very happy in their own world. And the other one's got a dream. They're determined. They're misguided, but they're determined. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and of course, their dream leads them to Chaz Palminteri. I got, I have to bring him up because you mentioned, you know, the, the, the endless quotability of the film. <laughs> Yes, of course. Of I, course. I, I think maybe when I first saw this movie, like when it first came out, they, they, I'm pretty sure, you know, you, know you, you hang around with a group of friends go, wait, did you touch my ass? <laughs> I think you want to touch my Like, it's, it, I don't know why that character makes me laugh so much. And I don't even know why he's uncredited in, in the film. Like, yeah. It, it's one of those things where, like, it's such a good character. And yet, you know, very much, it's, it's almost like, and this is going to be an obscure deep cut of a film to, to, to bring up. The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. It's, it's an odd film. And there's an uncredited cameo that lasts about maybe five minutes by Robin Williams as the King of the Moon in this film. And it's the funniest damn part of the movie. And he's not mentioned in the credits anywhere. Chaz Palminteri, though the bar owner in this, has one of the most memorable characters in this. Because, hey, he's just so freaking likable in this role. Oh, yeah. But he's not credited. Why? Yeah, it, it really throws me that he's not credited because I feel like he was such a a big part of this movie of, you know, not just because he had so much screen time, but also because he, he drives so much of uh of the outcome of their lives and he's he's just hilarious and he's fantastic when he's asking dewey did you touch my butt 
<laughs> Sir, from where I'm standing, it's a physical impossibility. I know your tricks, Dewey. <laughs> you have no idea how many times I've told people, I know your tricks, Dewey. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, ah, let me live my life. It's the obscure lines again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it, it is. It's one of those things where, you know, he's on screen. You're smiling. That's yes. literally what Chas Palminteri did with this character. He's on screen. You're smiling. That that's the that just goes to show how much he made of a character. You know, that's very minor in in the grand scheme of things. But yeah, he's he's almost the MacGuffin for the Butabi bro, uh, brothers. In that he's I, I, there's that line where after the you know Greco gets them into the into the Roxbury and they're they're being brought to the VIP. You know, and uh, and and Doug goes like, "That's what we want to be." It's like, I thought we want to be Greco. It's like, you know, <laughs> you know, look, looks and money and car, yes, but you know, career, that's guy. You know, it's right. It it, it is. He's very much, um, you know, the the business MacGuffin for them. And yeah, I I say it again. Could not stop smiling when his character was in the scene. Yeah, but it's also because of the energy that he brings to it. He he comes into it with full force, and you know. He's just so loud and energetic and, and bombastic, um, but he's not douchey about it. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's he's genuinely he just seems like a genuinely nice guy. He meets these total randos. And not only is he like, come sit with me, they, they seem like good boys. But then he he listens to their wild ideas for nightclubs and he listens to them put down his other nightclub <laughs> and takes it in stride like, I also own that place. And they're like, uh, sorry that we just, you know, <laughs> trashed it. But um, but then even after he proceeds with implementing their idea for a new nightclub, he's already written them into the into the contract. So he doesn't just go and steal their ideas. He doesn't kick them out for being nobodies. And he doesn't uh, put down their suggestions just because they're strangers he he's just like happy to to listen to people who are interested in the same things that he's interested in and i I really love that and it's always like with a smile and you know it it is interesting because at at their heart steve and doug they're they're good boys these are good boys i like these boys these are good boys right yeah (laughs) and and Chaz, like as an la club owning businessman you know you could see you know, not the tendency, but the trope of making them like the, I'm going to steal your ideas. I'm going to cut you out and all this kind of stuff. No, he's, he's a good guy. He likes good boys. It's, you know, everything around him is good because he treats everyone around him good. And I think that just makes this character that much more likable. I don't know if someone other than Chaz Palminteri could do that. You know, I, I don't know. And I'm, it's really a blessing, the casting in this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, however accidental it may have been, who knows? But he's just perfect in this role. And no, I can't imagine anybody else bringing like you, that to the role and and having you just just fall in love with him, basically. Mm-hmm. If, I mean, if you took someone who's a bit louder, right? You put a Tommy Lee Jones in that role and mm-hmm. it doesn't come across as genuine you know you take a you know and and i'd have to double check to see if he was still alive at the time sam kinnison in the role you know mm-hmm. uh, for a loud character 
it doesn't cut across that well. Heck, you even put Jim Carrey, who, of course, you know, did a little bit of the uh, rewrite or contributed to it a bit. And it doesn't come across because it's too over the top. It's almost that perfect level of, you know, manic energy. It doesn't come across as over crazy. It doesn't come across as sleazy. It's it's good manic fun. It's 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 the perfect level. You know, mm. because just like you were saying, I can't imagine Jim Carrey in any of the roles that were in this movie. And I know that that one of the the funny things with it is that the most famous one of the SNL sketches of the Butabi brothers is the one with Jim Carrey in it. Um, where even to this day, my husband jokes, it wasn't it three guys in the car. And I'm like, Jim Carrey was not part of the Butabi <laughs> brothers in the show. But yeah, absolutely. He, his energy level would have read. So like kind of like smarmy even, mm-hmm. um, which is something that this character could have been, but with this performance, it was just so sincere and just so happy and just so eager to, you know, to connect with people that he thinks are are nice people. One of the people I want to bring up from the film, and I'm going to say the name, and unless you know, right, you're like, oh, that guy, because this guy's definitely much that, that guy from that film, and you don't quite know their name, but Lachlan Monroe, who plays Craig in this, and Again, it's one of those times where you're watching the movie and it's like, oh, oh, he's that guy from that film because he's hey, he's been in a lot. You yes. Know? The fact that he was able to play four characters in 21 Jump Street over four different episodes over, I think, four, four different years. But, you know, what were your thoughts on? I mean, I know what I thought, but I'm curious your thoughts on Craig. Listen, I love Craig. I think he's fantastic. And I've seen Lachlan Monroe in other stuff and, you know, um, in some dramas. I think he was in a Criminal Minds episode um, Mm -hmm. a few years back where he was somebody who was shady. And it's such a different energy from Craig. And I I think that this was was like a really skilled performance because Craig is, he's kind of like Steve, that they're both just kind of in their own little world. They're not especially you know good at reading people for their intentions that just um they're they're their own little special uh breed of of human but he's also just so likable because he's he's so earnest and so friendly and he just he, he wants to be a good friend to doug and steve um he does also want emily but he doesn't um do anything skeezy to get her He's far too respectable. Far too respectable. Yes. It's, you have to think that if, if Craig was actually a Butabi boy, Craig would probably be the middle child. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. With, 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 you know, with dad kind of, you know, leaning on Doug and mom pampering Steve, Craig comes across as that, as that guy who would probably like, I got to fend for myself. I'm going to be happy about it. I'm going to set my own way. I don't need to like literally the brightest ray of sunshine in this movie is Craig. And like you, like you mentioned, like he's done a lot of dramatic roles, but I also remember from, from other roles where it's like, yeah, he, he plays this lighthearted, fun, very optimistic character. It's, he is a verse. He's almost like the male version of Molly Shannon. In that again, you put him in uh-huh. anything, and he's going to take that role and and make it run. Like I'm, 
I'm surprised Lachlan Monroe is not a more, I'm not going to say a big name because, you know, clearly he is a well-working actor, but surprised he's not as more recognized as he should be because of what he's able to do with these roles. Right. I think he's just one of those character actors who does such a good job of blending into the the role and into the, not background, but into the environment of whatever he's in that we kind of take it for granted. You know, like another great character actor um, is, oh my, oh, uh, Beth Grant. Mm-hmm. Beth Grant, who's been in, you know, Donnie Darko, The Mindy Project, and just a bazillion things. You know her as soon as you see her face, but she's not a bigger name. But that's because, you know, any role that, that she that she takes, she just knocks out the performance out of the ballpark, but in such a subtle way mm-hmm. that... She's there, but she's not taking up too much of the, uh, the heat off of the, the the main stars. Yeah, they're 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 there to hoist the script, hoist the scene, anchor everything, and you know, not not take the spotlight, but point the spotlight where it needs to be pointed. Like, yeah, the the production crew was happy or lucky to get a, as good an actor as Lachlan Monroe and Molly Shine as well you know, to, to anchor those roles because they bring so much to it. Right. Right. And all of this is part of why I think this movie works so well, because you, you do have this roster of great talent that they each bring a lot to the, to their respective characters. They, the performances are all great. And there's really never a moment in which you feel like you're taken out of the movie because everybody in it is just so in it. Mm-hmm. So you really feel like, like this is a full world that you're stepping into. Let's talk about that world. Okay. Um, basically the whole story of night of the Roxbury. We talked about, you know, the success slash failure rate of SNL skits turned to movies and the ones that work really kind of take the, the characters and just show you their world as opposed to taking the character and let's put them in a wacky situation and see what happens. This was very much the let's show you the world of the Butabis. And I think that goes a long way in making this one of the more, you know, I can't really say successful, right? Because <laughs> at 11%, it's not necessarily successful. It's not a money loser, but it's not necessarily, it's not Wayne's World. You know, it's not Coneheads, right? right? It's, you know, it's Night at the Roxbury, but that's not necessarily a bad thing because it was an easily digestible film. Yes, yes, that, that that's well put. Um, I think that for all of the failures that the SNL skit, movies have had and all of the massive successes this is definitely somewhere in the middle um and you're right it is because they're just showing you an expanded version of the world that you see in the skit if you really think about it the only time that you really truly see the world in the skit is the very beginning before they're kicked out of the Mm -hmm. of the club um 
because that's when you see them, you know, they're they're doing their their shtick from the from the skit with the wiping their noses and um, dancing, like bouncing a girl between them, you know, dancing and everything. They get kicked out and suddenly they're in the they're outside of the club and, you know, they're not in the car. Oh, my God, what's going on? <laughs> that's when the movie really begins. But it's not a jarring thing because they're still the same characters that they were inside the club. It's just that you're seeing the rest of the world. Um, and I think it also helps that because they were so thinly written on SNL, when they're getting fleshed out, they were fleshed out in such a way that they didn't carry that douchiness of um, of kind of accosting women into the rest of the, the world. You, there, there's more of, a, of an innocence that's afforded to them in the movie that it, because they really could have written it differently. They, they could have decided, okay, well, these guys are just creepy douchebags and that's what we're going to do. They're just, the, the whole movie is going to be devoted to them trying to get a girl. And that's not what happens. The whole movie is devoted to, to them trying to get their dream of starting a club. I think if you take a look at, you know, at the Wayne's world model, if you will, because Wayne's world might be, you know, at, at least the pinnacle of Saturday Night Live sketches turned turned into movies. Um, you know, again, I still love Codeheads. I think Codeheads is great, but I think you know, one. but I think on, on a grand scale, Wayne's World probably you know hit all the all the right hits. But that first Wayne's World movie, it is very much like this is their life outside of their own little cable TV studio, and this is just happening. But if you take a look at Wayne's World 2, when they try to put on Wayne stock, that's what it gets into the, oh, when he's having the dream sequence with the with the, the half-naked Indian guy walking around in the desert. And it becomes a little bit more not as easily relatable as the first Wayne's World. The first Wayne's World, again, just expands on the story of the characters that you already know. Second Wayne's World, let's take those characters, put them in the, into the wacky plot. Mm-hmm. I'm almost glad that we don't have a night at the Roxbury too, because I'd be, I'd be scared to see what quote unquote wacky scenario they're going to put them in. Unless night at the Roxbury two focuses on, uh, Lachlan Monroe and Molly Shannon. That what I'm fine right. with. Yeah. Let, right. Let's follow them now. That, that'd be fine. <laughs> right. Well, it's interesting. Like I, I, there's a lot of stuff that I like about Wayne's world too. And most of it really has to do with, with Garth and his kind of, personal growth and a couple of scenes here there where um mike meyer speaks in mandarin and uh then there's the oh when oh he played um al bundy oh uh uh is ed Ed harris the the name is escaping me yes ed harris but i know who you're talking about Yeah, yeah okay so and he has that that prolonged speech about you know like da 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 and it gets very scary and very dark. So you have all of these these little bits that work really well, but as a whole, the movie doesn't. And mm-hmm. yes, it's it, it suffers from what happens very often in movies and franchises like, like these, where they take something that works and they take out the reason why it works. Mm-hmm. Um, because they think that they have to, to do this. And like I was saying at, at the beginning... A Night at the Roxbury doesn't ask you for much. Wayne's World doesn't ask you for much. Wayne's World 2 asks you for too much. Mm-hmm. It asks you to to believe that these guys are going through all of these weird things that 
has no business happening to them. Um, and I think more than anything that that's really why it doesn't succeed. It's because uh, it suddenly makes demands of you to follow them outside of where they live and where they, where you've seen them, you know, and I, in a lot, in a lot of senses, part of what a sequel will do to crash is make its characters either stagnate too much or grow up too much. Like there seems to be no in between with, with bad sequels. I can, I can see that. I can, I, every time now I think about sequels, I don't know if you've seen Free Guy or not. Um, not I, yet, I no. all, all I hear is Taika Waititi going, IPs and sequels. And that's pretty much all, all of our, our movies today. <laughs> but I, I also love that you brought up the the bits, you know, the parts that we loved about it. And then they, they expanded on it. Yes, we got the head bopping. Yes, we heard what is love. Head bopping into the window was the perfect, perfect <laughs> way to, to expand. Yes. But, but there were a lot of just little not even just sight gags but just little comedic bits and 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 beats in this script that really do make this like you're enjoying yourself the entire hour and a half all the way through there's no slowdowns there's no you know esoteric moments where where they're trying to you know get in touch with whatever inner no you're going to laugh for an hour and a half, and that's exactly what they set out to do, and that's exactly what they did. Right, and it, it's it, it's funny too because even though you're just laughing the whole time, there there are some really heartfelt moments where you you really feel for them. You know, when when Camby and Vivica break up with them <laughs> because they turn out to not be these rich guys that they thought that they were. It's like, oh, you know, that that's really crappy of them. You know, poor boys. When <laughs> when Steve is, is getting everybody sad in the flower shop because he's used to seeing Doug at the register and suddenly Doug's not at the register because Doug has stormed off and moved out to the guest room. And he, his father comes over to him like, what is the matter? You know, you're making everybody cry. And he's like, I just miss Doug. He's across in, in the guest room. Um in there's, the pool house. there's cable yeah he's like there's cable there but there's no hbo <laughs> and even though it's such a silly moment you still feel like oh my gosh he really misses his brother and of course the the, the big emotional scene where steve is marrying emily and doug shows up playing the boom box with uh what is love straight just, out straight out of say anything oh absolutely it's a totally but like I remember the first time that I watched it like I got a little bit teary because I was like oh he really you know they really do love each other they really do have this wonderful um sibling relationship that is just so beautiful and so pure because I, I feel like like that's another thing there aren't enough movies in which relationship relationships between um male characters are just this pure where they just really love each other, they care about each other, um, and there's no shame in in how they show it to each other. Uh, there's just not enough of that, you know? It is a surprisingly 
It's it's funny because as we're talking about this, you know, we're talking about Lachlan Monroe being a ray of sunshine. We're talking about, you know, Molly Shannon being like this driven yet not stupid, you know, stupid, crazy driven kind of character. We're talking about positive family dynamics and all of this. There is a lot of really pure and wholesome stuff in a movie about two guys who like to go back on women in clubs. Like, yes. <laughs> like when you when you look at it, and I think that's probably what people aren't picking up on this. I think that's why you see such a massive swing in the tomato meter versus the audience score. The audience gets it. And I think critics kind of go into a Saturday Night Live movie pretty much with their knives already drawn and ready to stab them like, like like it's, you know, the Ides of March. Like it's pretty much like they already have it in their mind that they're not going to like this film. The audience is usually the one you should probably listen to. And the fact that they're saying at 69%, they're saying this is a good movie. Like that tells you all you need to know. But even some of those comedic beats too. The fact that they were able to use wardrobe as a, as a comedy bit, like there are some (sighs) garish to put it lightly (laughs) outfits. Like, like there is, there, there is no, sense of ego in these two guys wearing None. some of the clothes that they wore. And it well, just, just makes it the funny. Bathing suit. Just oh, look God. at the bathing suit when they're strutting down the beach in their teeny tiny Speedos with their butts hanging out. And there's no, they're, they're not being the least bit precious about it. You know, they're, they're just walking down the beach. Um, in their butt Talking floss. to each other about business. Yeah, yeah. And then occasionally getting distracted by a beautiful woman that they have to stop and, and say, what's up? You know, like you, you're from out of town. Um, there's no self consciousness at all, um, and it's 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 funny to see too because you know I I think about how with women there's always the expectation that if you're going to be unself conscious about your body, it's going to be used as a joke. Mm-hmm. You know that that if it's uh, it, you're either just there to be sexy or to be comedy. not, yeah, right, right, and. It's it's a it's a really gross double standard because here are these two guys who can just use their body however they want, um, and there's really nothing ascribed to it aside from the fact that um, that it's just the the gag isn't their bodies the gag is that they turn around and they're basically wearing thongs, which is unexpected. But as they're walking forwards, it's not it's not especially funny that they're you know wearing tiny um, briefs. So it, it's. It's a very unselfconscious move, but then it also makes you, th- well, especially I think if you're a woman, it makes you think about like all of the the things that women would have to go through to be, to not go through, but all of the things that women are subjected to when it comes to what they wear at the beach mm-hmm. and all the expectations that come with what your body should look like. Um, but then also like all of the other outfits the the mesh shirt outfit that they're wearing towards the beginning as they're walking to um staying alive yep when, <laughs> it's it's an iconic outfit i love that club outfit so much just in the daytime they're wearing it yeah exactly that's one of the things that that's one of those scenes that really kind of pointed me towards the director you know john fortenberry and there is a lot of smart directorial moves and it's it, they're subtle right mm-hmm. but but that's saturday night fever walk all by itself because it was so 
like match tone and camera angle and feel of the whole thing. Like you have to sit there and really appreciate where the thing came from to make sure that you pull it off. Well, even the, um, the choreographed dance scene at the Roxbury. Yes. Right. The, the first thought that crossed my mind was the movie airplane. When they're, oh. when they're doing, when they're doing the flashback. And I think like even this part where, you know, uh, you know, the, he's lifting Chris Kattan and swinging him around by the waist. That's almost yes. like pulled directly from airplane. And I wouldn't be surprised if they went back, looked at that scene and said, you know, here's what we want to build from. Let's make it bigger. Right. And also my understanding is that um, a good part of, of the dance with, with the girls is like a direct copy from my blue heaven. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it and they pull it off really well. And one of the, you know, I keep bringing up their relationship as brothers and how seamless it is that they spend like half of that dance dancing with each other. You know, it's like, this is what they're used to. So they're just going to dance with each other until the girls are like, hey, pay attention to us. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's, it's oh my gosh, I just, I love those, those little things so much. And uh, these are definitely not t-shirt and jeans guys. Like you never see them particularly dressed down. No, these these are the guys who would literally lo- mow the lawn in a bright <laughs> neon suit because yes. because they wouldn't do anything uh, you know if they weren't you know ready for the club at all times. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah, for sure. I can I, you know I, I can vividly picture that right now where they're matching suits and you know like one is in one color, one is in the other, but like just all the way up and down. Absolutely. Yep. Say to everyone as they walk by, sup, sup, sup. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only way it could happen. We we can't talk about this movie and not talk about the biggest star of the movie. And that's the soundtrack. Yes. Like, what is Love Aside? Because you knew that song had to be there. And now, by the way, if, if it's not stuck in your head as you're listening to this podcast, it's going to be. <laughs> the, the minute... Someone says, what is love? If your if your response right after is baby don't hurt me no more afterwards, you're not you're not had a weighing right. But correct. But yes. As you go through like the full soundtrack, you know, what was a you know, if some of the jokes are one note jokes, this could have been a one song joke all the way through, but they filled it with a, a catchy as hell soundtrack. Yeah, it's a great soundtrack. Um, it has, you know, this is your night. It has, it even has everybody hurts, which was like an unexpected, you know, out of left field thing. I also liked that, you know, when, when you were mentioning that it could have been a, a one song joke kind of thing. And it wasn't, which is the only reason why it was so effective when they used the music version of what is love and the elevator. Oh, I love that scene. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's, if they had used that movie just incessantly throughout the whole the whole the whole way through, it would have really felt like, all right, we got it. Okay, we got it. But they didn't do that. So it was extra funny that they have like the music version and they're just like gently bopping their heads in the elevator. It's very much like there's only one movie they can pull off hearing the same song over and over and over again. And that's that thing you do. Yes. Right? Um, <laughs> You know, if you think about like you know the the classic Mortal Kombat films, 
every time you hear the Mortal Kombat, you know, did it, did it, did it, did it? No, no, no. Just <laughs> stop it, please stop. But yes, I, I think I think they they used a an almost you know restrained use of what is love, which yes. made it, which made it even more. I do have to point out a crime for this film though. <gasps> there was there was an please absolute do. crime in 1998 of the Billboard top. 100 albums throughout the entire year only three movie soundtracks at number one this was not one of them how right you know what okay if we're gonna invent the time machine it should go it should be to go back and correct this egregious error now admittedly admittedly jay-z kind of took over october on the billboard top 100 <laughs> charts but of the three soundtracks that made it to number one on the Billboard Top 100 that year. Titanic. Okay. All right. City of Angels. Eh, okay. It has like two songs that I can think of, but okay. Yeah. I, I think that was mainly because of Iris from the, from the Goo Goo Dolls. Yeah. That would have pushed it up. And Armageddon. Probably because I don't want to miss a thing from, from Aerosmith. Yeah. But I wonder if it's because what is love? I mean, it's, it's a five-year-old song by the time this movie comes right. out. So I wonder if that's why it didn't hit number one. But in hindsight now, if they ever release a Night at the Roxbury Muzak CD. You know, <laughs> so 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 Night at the Roxbury's Elevator, I'm totally fine. Or Elevator at the Roxbury. I want Elevator, <gasps> at, the elevator Roxbury. at the Roxbury. This needs to happen now. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. That's going to win a Grammy right there. You just gave away <laughs> a Grammy winning idea. If, if, if they do come out now with Elevator at the Roxbury. <laughs> You heard Which, it here first, okay? Right. You credit us. You invite <laughs> us to the movie. And when we walk down the red carpet, we start going like this. It's all good. Um, That's all we asked for. Now, I put it out on Twitter as to, you know, if the Twitterverse had anything to say about this film. Sophie Strutz chimed in with, makes me laugh, great movie, a classic, really. And good friend Anthony, Monkey Noodles, uh, put it out there as, I love that movie. It's hilarious. Me and a friend of mine at the time would always imitate their head bobbing dance move when we'd hear a pop song at work. I always love when their skits were on SNL. I have to ask you, because you love this film. How many times a week do you find yourself bopping your head? Constantly. Constantly. Like, I, I do it frequently. My son knows how to do it. He's eight. My husband, he he's perfectly fine with it because he has no choice. Um <laughs> But yeah, I mean, like I, I bought my, when I was watching the movie earlier, I would bop my head along with them. Um, I do it to random songs. That's my go-to dance move because I'm not very coordinated. So this works <laughs> for me really well. It's also a very good upper, upper, upper body workout. Very effective for those neck muscles. It's almost like the dance version of head banging. Which yes. Are, which. When you consider that them at the dance club looks like a mosh pit, it kind of works. <laughs> right. Now, yeah, it's, it's, it's perfect for that. You do realize before we get to our MVP, I have to put this out there. Seeing as how you are the co-host of the Bed, Wed, and Behead podcast. Bed, Wed, and Behead, Doug, Steve, Craig. Oh. i put you on the spot gosh. with this one. Oh. <sighs> This is the moment I've always dreamed of and never thought it could happen. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. I think that what's going to have to happen is that I 
bed Craig because I feel like that enthusiasm would be put to very good use. I then think that I wed Doug because he has ambition and he is he is smart. He would always find a way to get me into the best clubs. And if not, he could just tell me that story about Emilio Estevez over and over again. I don't mind. Emilio! Emilio! And unfortunately, that leaves me to behead Steve. And that's only because a choice had to be made. And I really... I I really think that uh, he needs too much out of of people. So, yeah, I, I don't know that I want to be all of that to a person. Clinger's gonna get killed. That's the way it's gonna be. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? What would be your choices? Oh God. Um you know what? I think I'm gonna behead Doug. Cause I have a feeling that if anyone's gonna take me down the wrong road, it's Doug. So I'm just gonna <laughs> I, I'm just gonna decapitate that problem right there. Right. <laughs> I think I'm gonna marry or or, or wed uh Craig. Because again, there's ambition, there's a plan there, and True. which means that I'm betting Steve because I have 42 seconds to kill. <laughs> That's a very good point. I, yes. I, th- I think I broke Carla. I broke <laughs> yes, Carla. You, did. you broke me with the truth. <laughs> okay, who is your MVP of Night at the Roxbury? My MVP is going to have to be Doug. I I really feel like he he really drives the story, even though he doesn't drive the car ever, which, what is up with that? You know, he's just like averse to driving. Maybe Steve's just a better driver. Maybe he doesn't have a license. I hadn't thought of that. It's quite but, possible. Yeah, huh. I hadn't thought of that. But yeah, I, I think he's he's really the, the driving force um, behind the whole Butabi train. W- without him... Steve would probably just never leave the house. I think, I think I have to go co MVPs on this one, mm-hmm. and it's not Doug and Steve. <gasps> I think I have to go with Molly Shannon and Lachlan Monroe, the happy couple at the end of the film who are going to make this happen and you know start to think about you know infomercials with their with their <laughs> with their plan. Of which I love the fact that there's like a little ad for like his his power bar at the end of yes! the credits, um, like. Again, I love fun credits at the end of a film. But again, Molly Shannon, Lachlan Monroe, I don't think they get as... They should be lauded more for what they bring to any film. And their characters made this movie more than just, you know, bopping heads and dudes in clubs and just filled out the world. Yes, yes. I mean, they're... I stand by mine, but I absolutely absolutely love your your choices uh carla thank you so much for bringing this movie to us where can we find the bed wed and behead podcast and where can we find you out, of, out there on the interwebs well you can find bed wed or behead podcast wherever fine podcasts are found and you can find our twitter at bed wed behead pod and instagram we are at 
bed.wet.behead.pod. If you'd like to wade into cesspools, we're also on Facebook. Just look for Bed, Wet, or Behead Podcast. And if you want to talk to me, you can find me on Twitter as well. That is at Carla Temis. That's C-A-R-L-A-T-E-M-I-S. Carla, thank you so much for this. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of It's Not That Bad. Now, here's the deal. If you can think of a movie that you think is unfairly maligned or just bad enough that there's no way in hell that I'm going to be able to find anything good to say about this film, hit me up on Twitter at NotThatBadCast. Let me know. We'll watch it. We'll dissect it. We'll probably regret our life choices afterwards, but that's okay. We're going to go down that road to prove to you that the movies out there that are unfairly maligned, low tomato meter be damned, they're not that bad. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Until next time, take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.